That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name is Holly Rowe, and my dilemma is college football doesn't start for 40 plus more days. Let's go get here already. This is a tough one for me. This might be the toughest one of all because I can't actually make college football arrive any sooner. But I can suggest two things. One is for Holly to take her own advice. And Holly, you talk about being present and in the moment. In the interview, we'll get to your joy journal and the ways that you're aware of what's happening right now and not looking ahead. So right now, appreciate the fact that college football isn't here. Figure out what you love about the WNBA or fast pitch softball, baseball, all the other sports that are going on and how much more time you have to devote to those things because college football isn't taking all of your energy. So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is sort of like the realtor approach, which is like you're super stressed when you're not busy because you don't have any houses to work on. And you're super stressed when you are busy because there's too many things to work on. It's a very cyclical job. So like that, I would think that you'd be able to look at right now and say, I don't have a thousand travel things to figure out. I'm not on a plane every other day. I'm not interviewing coach every other day. So as much as you love your college football, I think the fix here is not to wish that it would come sooner, but to appreciate that you are not completely overwhelmed with work right now, knowing that when it does arrive, it will be fun, but you will also be very busy. And that's the best I can do for you because I can't make it come any faster. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Holly Rowe. She's part of the college football ESPN Saturday Night Primetime team with Sean McDonough and Todd Blackledge. Also a sideline reporter for men's and women's college basketball, softball, gymnastics, WNBA, NBA. She's pretty much everywhere at ESPN. We had an awesome conversation. A lot of things about her were sort of what I expected from admiring her and watching her career. And then a ton of stuff that I did not know about um, her band, the Ho Ho Ho's, getting in fist fights in the club getting her big break while she had a newborn baby and bringing a stroller to practice, um, the advice that sort of formed her whole career, talking her way into ABC broadcast. There is lots of good stuff in here. Um, Shaq and breakdancing. There's there's a ton of good stuff. And at the very end, there is the craziest twist in the history of the Spanish Inquisition, the craziest answer we've ever gotten. Uh, so do not cut out early. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Holly Rowe. That's what she said. So happy to have Holly Rowe on the podcast and somehow, despite often working in similar spaces and covering similar things at times, I don't know that we've even spent much time together and everybody I know loves you so much and I respect your work so much. So I love the fact that I'm going to get to know you a little better, even if it has to be on the podcast instead of, you know, hanging out in Bora Bora or something, uh, which we're going to get to since you were just there. Um, actually, let's just start with Bora Bora. How was it? Did it live up to all of your hopes and dreams? First of all, I have traveled all over the world and Bora Bora is my favorite spot on earth. It is literally heaven. Um, you, you get there and you really are looking at the water and looking at the scenery and it just doesn't even seem real. It's so beautiful. You just feel like you're looking into a, a fake environment. It's so gorgeous. And it was really fun this time because I actually went with three different couples that were going on their honeymoon. Um, <laughs> one of which I had just married, which was Beth Mullins, our ESPN play-by-play announcer. Yes. Allen. 
So we kind of did an ESPN honeymoon Bora Bora trip. So not only was it the coolest place ever, but it was a really cool group of people, Maria Taylor and her husband, her mom, my son, and uh, one other couple that was on their honeymoon, Leah and Ashley. So we had a group of nine people, three honeymoon couples, two moms, and my son. So, you know, random, but so fun. Yeah, you know, Maria Taylor was on this podcast not long ago, and you guys had booked the trip. She was looking forward to it and telling me all about your very unique relationship. At one point, you guys were roommates, and, you know, you connected on so many things. So it sounds random, but I guess people who know your backstory would not be surprised to learn that if you're going to roommate with your ESPN colleagues, you might as well marry them and go on vacation and honeymoon with them. <laughs> uh, it really is truly uh, beyond just work for you. It's uh, Your work-life balance is just the same thing, it sounds like. Um, well, it's I need funny to you work with these people for years, right? You know, like I've worked with Beth Mullins for decades. So, you know, they become your best friends and your family, even though they are work colleagues. I loved it. And the photos looked amazing and it just looked very restful. But of course, now you're back for a million different gigs that are upcoming. And I'm amazed you even got time to get away because you're such a busy lady. Uh, let's get back to the very beginning. So you, you grew up in a place called Bountiful, Utah, which sounds idyllic. Can you describe that place to me? It's exactly how it sounds. It's nestled in the mountains just outside of Salt Lake City. It's kind of a suburb of Salt Lake City. And I grew up overlooking the Great Salt Lake and just this beautiful, um, steep mountain. We had horses. You know, we worked outside, played outside. So this is really wholesome, beautiful childhood in Bountiful, Utah. So um, Salt Lake City is a very unique place. How do you think it, it kind of if you think it made you who you are, or how was it different growing up there than maybe somewhere else? Well, I think my background was unique because my parents were very, very strict Mormons. And obviously, there's lots of Mormons in Utah. And so I grew up with this really interesting dynamic of very strict parents who um, I, I recently found some papers in my dad's stuff when after he passed away. And I had a personal progress report meeting with my dad once a week. Um, and, and I don't know if that was part of the Mormon church or if my parents were just crazy, but I, I just thought of that recently. I'm like, no wonder I'm so driven because I've been taught since I was eight years old, you know, have a meeting with my father. Are your goals on track? Are you on track? And I just laugh at my like little 12 year old stuff. Like, okay, I'm going to do better in spelling or whatever my goal was for that week. So I was going to say, what did the report had- say? The one that you found, how how were you doing? Were you? Were you I was doing up? very well. I I had some really positive ones. Like one of the things I had set a goal for was to have perfect attendance in school. So I think I went for five or six years, never missing a day of school, and I was really proud of that. Um, but then I did find a paper that um, I had written apology to my father, saying I am sorry for being a disobedient child, and I had misspelled <laughs> disobedient. So I think I grew up with very high expectations from my parents. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, but I, I read your your dad was really into sports. He was a sheep herder who grew up on a sheep ranch. Um, so I, I have this all this weird kind of mix of qualities. <laughs> I'm picturing him as like the Marlboro man, but also like sitting in, in, a, in a couch and watching football. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what it was, except for he was five foot three. So my dad was this what? little tiny man. Yeah, five three. I'm built a lot like my dad, so it's so funny. But um, he was a jockey. You know, he rode horses competitively. He went to the University of Utah on a partial boxing scholarship. 
So my dad just did everything. He wrestled, he played football, basketball. Even though he was small, you know, like in their small community, he did everything. And so he really instilled of me that love of sports. So that was, um, you know, we grew up going to BYU football games since I think I was five or six years old. And that was the era that BYU football was really good with Jim McMahon and Steve Young and Ty Detmer, you know, all these great quarterbacks. So I just grew up in a really highly, highly sports, um, enthusiastic family, and I really credit my dad for most of that. Oh my gosh, you need to write a book. Like I'm already sold on everything with uh, just this this little bit. It's, it sounds like such a fascinating childhood. Um, so were you into sports playing them as well, or was it more the the bond of of watching with your dad? No, I played. You know, I remember getting sent home from um, elementary school when I was in third grade because I would play football with the boys at recess. And I would get so dirty and the teacher sent me home. And now in this age of female enlightenment, I'm like, that's such a ripoff. They never sent the boys home because they were too dirty. But I had to go home and change. I can remember exactly the the peach pastel outfit that I had on that I had to go home and change because I came in from recess so dirty. So now I was a tomboy. That was the term we used back in the day. I don't even know if that's still politically correct. But, um, you know, like I kind of didn't no, I wasn't a boy. I, you know, like I just didn't think of it like that. I just yeah. played everything the boys did. I played softball, volleyball, ran track, um, basketball. Like I did everything gymnastics. So super active. Did you know at the time growing up that you wanted to make a job out of sports? I did. I, I remember being in fifth grade. Like I'm one of those annoying people that I've known exactly when I, I wanted to do my whole life. And I, I remember being in fifth grade. Remember those placement tests that you would take as a kid that would be like, um, are you good at this, 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 and this? Then you might be suited to be a doctor or you might be suited to be a nurse or whatever the job recommendations were. And I just remember raising my hand in fifth grade and being like, hey, my job is not here. What do I do? What do I mark? My job's not here. You know, so, <laughs> I just remember like I loved sports and then I also loved um, there was a woman in Salt Lake City, Utah, named Shelly Thomas that was on KSL Channel 5, and I just wanted to be her. She was just the classiest, most amazing anchor and reporter, and so those kind of two things merged in my brain for some reason. And I was like, I'm going to be Shelly Thomas, except for I'm going to do it in sports. So that's kind of what I've done. Did you ever get a chance to to tell Shelly Thomas that she inspired you? I have. I, I ran into her, oh gosh, it's probably been 15 years or more. And I, you know, just told her how much I'd looked up to her. And, um, so cool. you know, I don't know if she would still remember me to this day, but I have. I, you know, I've had a few women that have helped me like that. I always sure that I let them know how important they've been in my life. Yeah, that's really cool. So you head off to the University of Utah. You're writing for the student paper. So you're working towards the sort of journalist side of things. Uh, I read that your electives were all sports, baseball. I'm sorry, basketball you took from Rick Majerus and football from Ron McBride. So you were all in. Um, and was that application of what you had dreamed of doing just a reaffirmation of what you wanted to do? Or at any point in college, do you think, oh, maybe this isn't what I want or I'm into something else? No, I, I never wavered on what I wanted to do. And so I was lucky because, you know, in college you have to take these other electives. And it wasn't a minor then, but now they have like sports broadcasting, you know, majors at certain schools and sports broadcasting programs. So I think I kind of made it up a long time ago, but I took sports law, sports psychology, sports ethics, 
Um, yeah, I was very proud that I got an A in my coaching basketball class from Rick Majerus. And, uh, you know, just I just cobbled together out of my own interests these random electives that, that were all around sports. I mean, I don't even think we would ha- – we don't have when, – when I went to school, we didn't get to choose, like, learning a sport as a class. That would have been – that would have been lovely. Uh, I, I don't know if I would have figured out early enough that it's something that I wanted, though. So maybe I missed up for my own faults. Um, so you leave college. Uh, what's your first gig? I think probably one of the most impactful things I did right out of college was I would do internships. So I did a couple. I did one at KSL Radio in Salt Lake City, and one of the coolest things I got to do – I remember my boss, Chris Tunis, one of the famous radio show hosts there who has since passed away. He was like, hey, you know, the Utah, the All-Star Game is in town. Utah Jazz are hosting the All-Star Game. Why don't you go to the media session and do interviews? So one of the very first things I ever did as an intern was go and interview Shaquille O'Neal his rookie year and Isaiah Thomas and Carl Malone and all these great players. And I I still can remember the story that Shaq told me, you know, at 7-2 or I can't remember exactly how tall he is, but seven two or seven eight or whatever. Um, when he was going through his growth spurt as a kid, like from twelve to sixteen, he was a break dancer, and so he always had like this kinesthetic <laughs> awareness in his body. And he was never like the awkward, gawky, tall guy because he was always dancing and was really in tune with his body. So that's the story I remember him telling me at All Star when I was an intern. That's so um, cool. Yeah, it was cool. But then the next thing I did was I went to New York City and I was an intern at CBS Sports in New York. And that's really where I credit Leslie Visser, who is kind of one of the first iconic female sideline reporters. She's in the NFL Hall of Fame. She's so important. And she's the first person that ever said to me, hey, have you thought about being a sideline reporter? So I didn't even really know what that job was. Um, you know, I guess I thought I was going to maybe be an anchor or play-by-play or something like that. So Leslie Visser suggested that for me and then she suggested that I go meet with one of the legendary broadcasters in history Marty Glickman and so I went to this cafe on the Upper West Side with Marty Glickman and had had breakfast and um, you know he gave me some advice at that meeting you know 30 years ago that I've patterned my whole broadcasting career over so those were kind of the two big things I did in life first I think. What was the advice that you patterned your career after? Never make the game about you. So he thinks that if you go to you broadcast a game and you've told a good story or you've done a good job in the broadcast, that people remember the game or the play or the moment or the story, they don't necessarily remember who told it to them. And I just always thought that was such good advice is you're not the story. You should have it be about the game. And then he also taught me about um, practicing so, you know, like go down the street and practice describing a billboard or a park or a play or what are you seeing so that when you have to describe things on television, you're quick with the language and you can do it quickly. So I would walk down the street and practice out loud or I would sit in the stands with a little tape recorder and practice out loud describing what I see. So that, that all came from Marty Glickman. Wow, that's really cool. You know, I wonder, and I've asked Christine Brennan and a couple of the other sort of OGs about this, how the the media landscape has changed since they started. And I wonder, it is true that you're not supposed to make yourself the story. But on the other hand, what we're seeing in terms of the 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 flooding of the marketplace of op- of opportunities and options for people to choose where and how they get their sports news. Does it become more important for them to choose you, whether that's because 
you're just great at what you do versus making the story about yourself, but that at some point there's been a switch in terms of like how you present it is just as important as what you're presenting? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, all of our brains kind of like work as a computer. So if you spit out a name of, of somebody that you admired growing up in sports, Oh, um, gosh, I can't even think. Um, I mean, I, I was mostly admiring the athletes and not the broadcasters because I didn't know I wanted to do no, this. No, but that's what I mean, time. like an athlete. So, like, oh, Michael me, Jordan. Walter Payton. Yeah. Michael Jordan. Okay, so good one, by the way. My son is actually named after him. My son's name is oh, Kylan Jordan. Love it. Yeah. Um, I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. But so, Michael Jordan, what do you think of winner, champion? So, as soon as you say the name Michael Jordan, your brain immediately clicks in certain things, right? It's just how your brain functions. So I guess what I want to be is like when someone thinks of me, Holly Rowe or Sarah Spain, that they immediately think something positive, like I trust her or she tells good stories or she'll have something interesting to say, right? Mm. So you want people Mm -hmm. to have an immediate thought for you that's positive and, and trusting. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Are you tired of credit card bills with high interest rates, ready to pay off your credit card balances and start saving money? Get a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream with rates as low as $5.95 APR with auto pay, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 with no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. The rate is fixed, so it'll never go up over the life of the loan. Plus, you can even get your money in your bank account as soon as the day you apply. The online application is so easy, you can apply right from your phone. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, you can apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain, L-I-G-H-T, S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Spain. Subject to credit approval, rates include 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information. That's what she said. So you're, you're getting all this great advice from people and you're, and you're taking this to a couple different gigs. Um, tell me about, you know, what what kind of steered you towards ESPN eventually? And and I think I skipped over the BYU part, right? Um, why yeah, did that, you switch over from I BYU to, to University yeah, of I, Utah? I, yeah, I started out being a sideline reporter for BYU football. They had this syndication network back in the day um, where they would syndicate to 63 stations around the country, BYU and Air Force football. It was called the Blue and White Sports Network. So during the week, I would be the affiliate relations coordinator. So that would mean I would get the stations to carry the games. I would talk to the program directors. I would send them our commercial format. I would be the liaison with all of our affiliates. And then on the weekends, they would let me do the games. So that's kind of where I started. Um, And er early in my career, I figured out that every once in a while, ABC would come in and take our games. So you would be doing a local game and if the teams were playing well, ABC had the national contract and they would come in and take the game. So one year they came in and took our BYU-Utah game, which was the biggest game in the region. And, and I was so bummed. And I noticed in the game notes that they didn't have a sideline reporter listed. So I called the BYU sports information director. I was like, hey, why don't they have a sideline person? And he was like, oh, it's a, it's a D-level game. They don't think it's a big enough game to have a sideline person. So I called 
ABC and got to the producer and I asked the producer, Hey, I am, I was going to do the sidelines for this game for BYU. Could I do it for you? And he, he um, said, yes. So I was wow. able to do that game. That was back in 1995. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time that all the games were on satellite. So by doing that game for ABC, and then I figured out, well, if they don't have a sideline reporter on this B-level game, where else don't they have a sideline reporter? So then the next week, I would figure out, oh, this same crew is doing San Diego State at San Jose State. So I, you know, like took a train to San Jose because I was so poor, and and I did that game for them. And so I just kind of started figuring out a way to call on to these lower-level ABC games. And someone back in New York saw my work and, and liked my work, and they offered me a, a job the next year. That's incredible. That's that's really so um, – that's so brave of you, I guess, to, and smart. To, I, I say to, brave to, slash crazy because sometimes I'm like, yeah. I must have had some serious you-know-what. Yeah. Like, yeah, Why? that's crazy. Um, so – You've been with ESPN now since since ninety eight. Um, so you're a great person to talk to about sort of how things have changed there, how your job has changed there. What would you say has been um, the the biggest thing that you've had to adjust to since since starting there to now? Number one is I, I would say so we when we were with ESPN back in the day, it was kind of this rogue cable outlet and we just did anything. Like I just remember doing some of the craziest, most random stories. And, you know, like I, I did the running of the bull show once in Pamplona, Spain, or, you know, I would take my son with me everywhere and he'd just be on the sidelines at games with me. Like we just didn't have a lot of rules. And then we got bought out by Disney and joined with ABC and Disney and it became very corporate. So I think in some ways that's been hard because we had this very, irreverent, like do whatever we want. I remember doing an open from on top of an RV in the RV parking lot at Penn state one time, you know, like now our safety people would be mad at that or whatever. Right. So we just used to have fun and be like, whatever, and, and do all this crazy stuff. And now it's kind of corporate and more appropriate. And so sometimes I think I mourn the days of like the wild, wild, crazy, we could just do whatever. Nobody really knew what we were doing. And then second, I would just say, I think social media has changed everything. You know, it used to be you would read a story and follow up on a story and then you would save it and you would tell it Saturday in the game and nobody knew this information. Now, everything's tweeted every second. And so finding new information that's compelling that nobody else knows is a huge challenge. Like everything's out there. You know, I just think that's really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And then learning how to... uh how to how to use social media to your advantage, even if it's not your natural way, right? To share videos, and you do that very well. I mean, you you post a lot of videos, a lot of updates from events in the moment. Is that something ESPN has sort of pushed, or something that comes naturally to you? I think uh, it, it, ESPN didn't push it. Like in the beginning, I laugh about this because I can remember about even like seven or eight years ago having our college football seminar and them saying no one's allowed to tweet about sports. Like you guys can tweet your own personal stuff, but we're going to have a no sports tweeting policy to now. They're like, you guys tweet about everything you want, except politics. And you guys, right. you know, just sports, please. sports and whatever. <laughs> so I just laugh at how it's really changed in our workplace. But I, I'm just, I like stuff, you know, like I just did a little interview yesterday with the center for Oklahoma that's 
a sophomore, a true sophomore, and he's coming back, and he's going to be the only returning starter on the Oklahoma offensive line to protect Jalen Hurts, the biggest transfer in college football history. And so I just did a little social media thing with him, and it's already got like 30,000 views. And I'm like, well, good. I'm glad people are interested in the center from Oklahoma. You know, like it's random. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned your son and him being alongside you at work. Uh, how far into your career were you when you had him? When I first got that very first opportunity for ABC, um, which I kind of think, you know, was my big break, was in 1995. So that would have been like September or October of 1995. And my son was born in June. So what's that, four or five months old? So oh, wow. I started my career with a newborn. And I remember working that game. And this is probably too much information, but I was breastfeeding. And I remember like working and like my boobs are going to die because I've got to hurry, get home and feed my child because I'm here working. So I I had a break in my career at a really weird time in my life. And um, somehow I managed to do that with a newborn baby. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, you it's 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 remarkable how much the the media landscape has opened up to women in so many different roles, Um, even since you kind of got your big break. Um, what was their judgment for you as a woman first and as a mother second? Was it, was there an expectation maybe or, or unfairness surrounding um, the balance that you needed to have there? Honestly, I have no idea because, you know, you, you think about how we started our careers. There was no social media. So I had no idea what anyone thought of me. There, there right. was no forum for anyone to talk to me or tell me what they thought. All I knew is coaches liked me, players liked dealing with me, my bosses thought I did a good job. That's literally all I knew. Nobody was out here being like, oh, she shouldn't have her child there on the sidelines as they rush the field. You know, but that's what I did. I had no scrutiny that way. So I am grateful for that because, man, I did some crazy stuff. I remember wheeling a stroller out to the practice field at the Air Force Academy and Fisher DeBerry, like I, I think of it now, he was the coach at that time and him looking at me like, Oh, we have a baby at practice. How wonderful. And really probably what he meant was, what the F, you know? <laughs> That's what? crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and it's probably so beneficial early on to not have a constant stream of whatever people are thinking about you because you gain confidence in the work that you're doing and you don't worry about whether, you know, people are judging you or your baby or anything else. Um But I wonder, is it different? You mentioned, you know, working with coaches and players, so much of what you do and getting the stories that you're going to tell during the games is about relationships and connection. How different is it or is it not different for you when you start out and you're, you know, say 30 years old and you're not too far off from the people you're covering or or the coaches maybe, and now you're closer to the coaches' ages and and maybe the, the players seem a little bit more distant to you. Do you have different tactics in order to connect with them? Um, I don't know, because when I started, all the coaches were much older, you know, like Lavelle Edwards, kind of the BYU legendary coach, Bobby Bowden, Joe Paterno, you know, those were the era of coaches that I started with. And um, I literally just saw Ron McBride at a wedding this weekend. I ran into the Hmm. former University of Utah coach. And I said to him, I just want to say thank you to you, because when I started as a young student reporter interviewing you for the first time, you never treated me a, like a woman, or B, like I was different, or C, anything, you know, you think of men in that era, that it could have been a certain way. I said, I want to thank you, because I I have had success 
because I never thought I was any different than anybody. I, I was accepted by these old school men immediately. And so for Lavelle Edwards and Ron McBride, who were my first two coaches I really ever dealt with, Ron Cooper at Ohio State was one of the first coaches I dealt with, Bobby Bowden, like that generation of men could have been, and in other circumstances might have, you know, who knows, could have been very effective, and they weren't. And I'm so grateful. It, it never occurred to me that people would, would not accept me. Yeah, and I think uh, there are a lot of women I've spoken to that kind of feel the same way, and oftentimes it's because of growing up. For me, personally, you know, my parents had a law practice together. They were partners together. It didn't occur to me that I should expect anything less of myself or or accept if people would expect less of me. Um, was that something that you always felt coming up, and so it didn't, didn't even occur to you that this job was a traditionally male-dominant? It didn't really occur to me, but I did have one experience. So the very first week I got to CBS Sports in New York City, and I just remember being terrified to even walk down the street in New York, this dumb girl from Bountiful, Utah. And I'm working in, in this office in, you know, the main CBS Sports headquarters. And one of their famous announcers, I'm not going to say who because I don't want to get him in trouble, but one of the very famous announcers there came in and, and said to my boss, hey, I need somebody to make copies for me. And he looked at me. And my boss, Len DeLuca, who was the vice president of programming at that time, said, my intern doesn't make copies. And he was like, oh, why is she so special? And he said, well, she's a Rick Majerus girl. She's from Utah. And he goes, well, I'm surprised Rick Majerus would um, recommend her because he's president of Women in the Home with. And I was like, what? You know, like I think about that now and how controversial that would have been. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd never been treated like a woman um, in my job or in my goals in sports. So, you know, that was one comment I can definitely remember. And then I remember um, other announcers at, at CBS, like if a woman handed them a stat, they wouldn't accept it. And so I had a friend that would keep stats on one of the big shows and she would keep all the stats and she would just hand them to some guy so that he could hand them to the announcer and that the, he would assume that those were good stats because they were coming oh, from a guy. So <laughs> I know that it existed. I know that it, there was this under current this layer of that I just didn't experience it very often and I'm grateful maybe I was too naive to really see it that much but you know I'm lucky yeah absolutely sometimes it is about needing to sort of block it out otherwise it it, um, otherwise sometimes you even see it when it's not there because it becomes so insidious so you uh you just a few years ago get um a life-changing diagnosis of of melanoma you're diagnosed in 2015 and you're still not in full remission right you you had chemotherapy last year um and and you've spoken pretty openly about how life-changing and kind of uh, attitude changing this was for you can you speak to that yeah i think it's it's interesting because um like i think i'm a happy positive person and i've been living a really great life and now I look back on stuff and I just feel like I wasn't living really at all because you're waiting for the one day or someday I'm going to do this or one day I'm going to go here. Um, and so I, I'm really grateful in a way that I've gone through cancer and, you, you know, I'm doing really well now. I just had some scans two weeks ago and they were the best most positive scans I've had in four years. So awesome. I'm really optimistic. Yeah, I'm really optimistic that I'm going to come out of this. But there was a point, um, you know, maybe a year or two ago that, I maybe was going to die. And I don't really even know that I processed that, but my doctors now will tell me like, 
yeah, we didn't think you were going to make it. You had inoperable tumors in your lung and Mm. people usually die within six to nine months with those. So one, I'm glad that I was kind of naive and I was just like, oh, I'll just keep fighting. And I didn't really know how serious it was. Um, But two, I'm really lucky because there's this new immunotherapy that is saving people's lives. And I, I kind of got cancer at the perfect time that these treatments are available that are saving my life. So I'm very grateful. But, um, you know, like I'll give you an example. So my son was going to college in New York City and I didn't know how much time I would have left. And I thought, whatever time I have left, I'm going to live with my son. So we got an apartment on the Upper West Side in New York City. And I'm, I'm literally right now stepping, sitting like steps away from Central Park. You know, I would have never done that. I would have never put myself out there and been so dramatic and so courageous to pick up and move our lives, you know? So I'm grateful because cancer has made me really live a bigger life. I wouldn't have gone to Bora Bora on a honeymoon with three people or, you know, done all these dramatic, crazy things um, if I hadn't gone through cancer. So I think I'm living better. I'm living a better life every day. Um, And I hope I can keep doing it moving forward. Instead of like, oh, well, I'm going to worry about this, and I've got to worry about this, and all these little worries that you have, once you get cancer, man, those go out the window, and you don't care. You just don't care anymore. You're just trying to live. Yeah, you know, I had uh, Shelly Smith on the podcast a couple months ago, and she obviously said something very similar, and it's so hard, I think, for other people to try to take that lesson as much as people who go through these life-changing illnesses or experiences try to tell everyone else how to replicate that feeling or that or that attitude it's so hard to do without um experiencing it yourself have you found that friends and family by virtue of being close to you and seeing the changes in you are being more risky and 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 doing the things that they want in the moment and not waiting yeah i think so i think my friend is a good example of that i mean he goes for things we we just go for it and you know friends i i you know i just I keep going back to this trip just because that's what just happened to me. But like, I, I would have never convinced people to travel with me to Bora Bora before maybe, but all those friends have gone through this cancer journey with me and we're like, you know what? Life's short. We're going to live. So I do hope that people can t- get a piece of that. It is hard though, because you, you've never faced your mortality in the face. You know, if someone tells you you're probably going to die, you never get that wake up call. And, but I wish people would because nobody's promised tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So I, I I kind of started doing this thing, and you're going to think I'm cheesy, but it helped me a lot. And maybe it would help other people listening. Of instead of worrying about what I'm doing tomorrow, what I'm wearing tomorrow, where I'm going tomorrow, I would start writing down what made me happy today, what was my joyful moment today that I'm living in this moment of joy. Um, so like I had I, I've been keeping this little joy journal, and so one of my things I just recently noted was um, the. Megan Rapinoe scored two goals and she stands in the corner of the World Cup with her arms out to the stadium like in this proud peacock pose. And that was one of my moments of joy was watching that moment unfold for her. And, um, you know, whatever the moment is in the day that can keep you really centered and grounded in that day, I think that's important. So I'm definitely trying to do that and really wrap my brain and my heart around what is happy today? What am I living in this moment that's joyful? I love that. I love that. And I actually talk on this podcast a lot about 
uh, gratitude and I've gotten into neuroscience and how we can actually make our brains find happiness and gratitude and other emotions faster by creating synapses, by using those muscles that we don't consider. It's not literally a muscle, but by repeating actions over and over, it makes our brain go to that faster. Um, so yeah, enjoy I think it releases dopamine and herbal. all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like if you really think about it, when was the last time you had a moment that you were like, I'm so happy right now. Like, I just feel absolutely joyful, so happy right this second. Think of, think of one yourself. Yeah. Um, pretty recently, I have like an internal joy journal. I'm like that person who's always in this moment, like, this is awesome. This is the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of how I operate. Live, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty good. It's not bad. <laughs> um, so I wonder if you can articulate, and maybe you didn't know it at the time, what maybe scared you or prevented you from doing some of these things before? Was it more just being someone who was tied to what's realistic and what makes sense? So it makes sense for me to do this for my job or to live here or to make this choice? Or was it an actual fear of being outside of a comfort zone or, or money or what was standing in your way before? I think all those things. I think you live, I, I'm a very practical person. I've never bought a fancy sports car. I don't spend money on, you know, like I buy my shoes at TJ Maxx or Nordstrom Rack. You know, I'm not buying a $500 pair, pair of shoes. Like I'm super practical. Um, but I would always say I was adventurous of spirit, but practical of, of mind. And I mm. think that what I'm learning is if you have an idea, go do it. I think we get caught in, and I got caught in, well, I'll do that one day. You know, one day I'd love to take piano lessons. Um, well, when is one day? When am I going to do that? So I started taking piano lessons. I started a band. We did a Christmas concert. Our, our band's name was the Ho Ho Ho's. You know, like we, <laughs> it, it just, you know, like instead of like these ideas that float across your mind of like, oh my gosh, one day I would love to learn the ukulele or whatever. You know, I just started doing that stuff. And I'm like, that's all we need to be doing. We, we pack away all these little ideas of one day. And it's like, let's unpack them and do them this day. I love that. I'm going to, I want to write that quote down. That's, that's so special. Um, and I need, I need some footage of the ho, ho, ho's. Does this exist? Oh, it exists. It exists. Has it, has it been made public? I don't know that. I know there were people at the place <laughs> at our concert. <laughs> I need this. We need to unearth the ho ho hos. Yes, we need to unearth the footage of the ho ho hos. I need to. I know it's super awkward because my nickname in life is ho ho or hokey. That's what my family called me for short. And so, of course, my sisters have shortened it to ho. So we'll be like in the store, and they'll be like, "Hey, ho, can you grab this?" Blah blah blah. (laughs) And finally, my son is like, "Could you please stop calling my mother ho in public? This is so awkward." So anyway, that's how we came up with the ho ho hos. That's great. Um. So your mom just got married, right? Yes, my seventy-six-year-old mother. I want to hear about this love story. This is this is wonderful. Oh, you you get a kick out of this. This was a random. So my mother and this this guy Brent that she just married, they both went to, um, for lack of a better term, a Mormon matchmaker. So a person <laughs> in Salt Lake City, Utah, would meet the candidate in person, do an interview, do a financial, you know, credit check, background check. Um, interview people, and then they would match them to each other. And so my mom went on a date with this guy, and they're both 76 years old. They've both only been married one time. Both of their spouses passed away from Parkinson's disease. Wow. And they went on a date, and my, I, my mom told me that um, 
after the date, they hugged in the parking lot, and they both felt like a shock of lightning. And I was like, oh, "Oh my gosh, if my 76-year-old mother has chemistry with someone, there's hope for us all. Like, that's so cute. I love that. How was the wedding? Oh, it was so cute. It was, again, a very random, funny Mormon wedding because they got married in a church. And Mormon churches have these things called cultural halls, and basically it's a gym that you can set up tables and chairs and have a banquet, but then it's also a basketball gym. So we have this beautiful wedding. It's decorated just like a wedding, and then we all pitch in and put everything away, and then the family had to pick up basketball game after the wedding. So I'm like, that is quintessential Mormondom right there. That's so great. I love that. Time for a quick break, and then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Women of Marvel is the place to hear from women making waves in comics, pop culture, entertainment, and beyond. This official Marvel podcast is hosted by Marvel's own Sana Amanet and Judy Stevens, who have over 25 years of working at Marvel between them. They chat with people from all backgrounds who have inspiring stories to tell. Recent guests include Avengers Endgame executive producer Trin Tron, the cast and crew of Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel, and the cast of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., You can find Women of Marvel every other Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's what she said. All right. I need to do a, I need to do a speed round on a couple of these because I want to get to all of them. So, um, you've covered all sorts of things, all sorts of events. What would you say has been your favorite event to cover? Mm, It's impossible to pick, but I'll just give you a couple of my tops. So my very favorite college football game I think I worked was the Rose Bowl. Texas USC, Vince Young runs it in at the end to beat Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, most famous Rose Bowl probably of all time. I worked yeah. that on the sidelines. Um, I was there I outside just, in the in the parking lot getting footage for my hosting reel by trying to get as many famous people to talk to me as possible. Oh, good. And I got, good for I you. got, you know, a couple great people. And then also, as it turned out, my boyfriend, whose camera, his roommate's camera we were borrowing, had put it on mute. So most of my interviews were silent. Oh no! So you didn't get the most famous fans of no, all time. I mean, that to was Josh just a Jamel and yeah. Uh, but but I was oh. there. I was there, sort of. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That was that was probably one of the top. Um, yeah, I would say the the women's basketball, the NCAA championship, the last three years really. Morgan William of Mississippi State hitting a shot yeah. to beat UConn and end their 111 game winning streak. Um, with Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback there. That was cool. Uh, Arike Gumbawale hitting two back-to-back shots to win the national championship. And then this year, I got to cover the NCAA Gymnastics Championship for the first time in my life. Like, I'm a huge gymnastics fan. I grew up watching the Olympics as a kid, you know. So um, this year, I got to meet Nadia Kamenichi, and um, she was a big hero of mine. And, and I worked with her husband, Bart Connor, on the Gymnastics National Championship. And then, of course, college softball. World Series, um, 17 inning game two years ago with, um, or yeah, two years ago with uh, Oklahoma and Florida. So that was maybe one of the most epic games I've ever worked. That's, yeah, those are some good ones in there. You've, you've gotten some good ones for sure. Um, is there an athlete that you've connected the most with? Oh, wow. I don't know. I've, I think I connect with a lot of athletes. Um, I mean, Obviously, when early in my career, I got paid $25 to be a stringer for Chicago radio station, and I still have the paycheck stub of getting paid $25 to interview Michael Jordan, and he was so nice to me and so gracious and so cool, and I was obsessed with him, obviously named my son after him, 
So I would say Michael Jordan was somebody, a, a coach that I got very close with that was maybe one of the biggest impacts of my life was Pat Summit. Um, yeah. You don't have time, but I literally broke up with the hottest guy I've ever dated. Um, <laughs> he was Mr. Switzerland. I'm not making it up. Gorgeous guy, bodybuilder. And we were at the ESPYs. Pat Summit had just been diagnosed with dementia. And I'm in the, in the audience just sobbing as she gets the Arthur Ashe Courage Award from Peyton Manning. You know, and I'm like ugly crying, like, <laughs> this is awful. And uh, he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm just so upset. And he's like, she's just a coach. Calm down. Oh. And when he said Pat Summit was just a coach, uh, we broke up. Because I thought that if he can't end. understand why I love her, he'll never get me. So broke up with Mr. Switzerland. I swear to God, Mr. Switzerland over Pat Summit. So she was someone impactful to me. That's amazing. I love that. I, I like how also you're like, you know what? You're not even worth teaching. Uh, I'm just down with you. Yeah. Like you might no, be from Switzerland. Never gonna get it. I'm not going to tutor you on Pat Summit. That's that's too much. You might have the nicest body ever, but some <laughs> things are not, not acceptable. <laughs> um, and what about a dream gig that you haven't done yet? Olympics. I've never gotten to work in Olympics and um, I've gone as a fan. I'm going as a fan this year to Tokyo 2020. I'm already planning the whole thing because softball's back in. So I've gone to the Olympics in the past and supported beach volleyball, gone to track and field, went to every U S women's basketball game. I'm a huge fan of our U S Olympic women's basketball team, went to soccer, watched Abby Wambach play. So I've done that as a fan, but I would love to work the Olympics. Like that is my bucket list. I have to ask quickly, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I actually saw Diana Taurasi talking about how cool it was for the U.S. women's national team to get this little celebration, and they get the parade, and they do a little tour before they return to their NWSL teams, and that her Olympic experience is always like immediately returning back to work, and we don't ever give the women's basketball team its due for being as dream teamy as the men's side, to be as dominant as anything we've ever seen. How do we... How do we create a campaign for them for the upcoming Olympics where we all appreciate and root for and cheer on the women's basketball team the way we have, say, the World Cup team? Well, first of all, it's total crap because they are the most dominant, not women's team, most dominant Olympic team in history. They have won more than any other nation in a row dominating their opponents. Like the the U.S. women's basketball team is the GOAT. And I, I just wish we could trumpet that better. You know, I definitely try through my opportunities. But this coming year should be even more special because, you know, Sue Bird, Diana Taurasi, that might be their last go-around. I know they're trying to make the Olympic team. Like, this this generation is turning a page of some of these greats that are going to retire. And we have to celebrate them. So, my gosh, if they win another gold medal, damn near – we got to get the ticker tape parade going for them because yeah. they deserve it. Every woman that's played on those four straight Olympic gold medal championship winning teams, they, they need to have that, that honor because they've been so dominant. Agreed. We'll come up with a camp campaign. We need to, we need to Let's find some good PR social media spin to get people on board because they deserve it. Uh, before yeah. I let you go, I do have to have you do the thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish oh. inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Shaka Khan. Fire. Nice. Nice. Uh, What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? 
curiosity. That's a great one. That's that's that seems to be the bedrock for most people that get into our business. Uh, it's just always wanting to learn more. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Organizing. I, I can't organize my clothes, my closet, um, constantly organizing. So I say that's my biggest failure as a human being. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day. I'm sorry, I skipped one. I need to know this one. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yeah, absolutely. Back in the club in the day, you know, your girl gets into it with somebody and you have to step in. More like hair pulling, but absolutely. I remember beating up boys in fifth grade too. So sorry about that, guys, but definitely. So when you get in a fist fight in the club, are you doing the traditional taking off of the earrings first? Hell no. There's no time for that. You've got to go in. You wait in. There's no getting ready. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What are you – what – what? I, this sounds like more than one occasion. Are you fighting over men? Are you fighting over spilled drinks? What are we fighting over in the club? Um, both. Usually, I would never initiate the fight. It would always be my friend, Tori or Danae, but I would always have their back. I was never the reason, but I would always be the supporter. <laughs> oh, my God. I love – we need to have a whole other podcast just about your fist fights. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? I'm sure I'm supposed to say something highbrow like the Dalai Lama, but I'm going to keep it real. Oprah, of course. <laughs> she basically is the Dalai At this point, she's better than the Dalai Lama because he said if the Dalai Lama was a woman, she'd have to be hot or people wouldn't want to talk to her. So he's been canceled. So Yeah, no, Oprah, I got to meet her recently, and it was the greatest experience oh of my, my life. Gosh. And she's like a unicorn. She's everything you want her to be except better. Like she held my hand. She talked right oh. to me. Like, we go to take a picture, and she moves her hair so our, our forehead will touch in the picture. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I love you yes. more than more. Magic. Yeah. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, my God. I don't know if there's time for that. There's so many times. <laughs> Maybe coming out of a truck stop after getting gassed in college once, and I had on a dress and pantyhose and no panties. And a semi went by, and the dress blew up, and um, showed everyone. <laughs> uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Consistency. I, I don't think I do anything consistently every day. Like I, I'm right now trying to get myself to go out and work out right now, and it's like four thirty. So I've been procrastinating all day. Well, I'm currently engaged in a in a overhaul of my habits so that I can more consistently do certain things. So if I, I've been soliciting tips from people of the world and I'm reading a book about changing habits. So I will pass on the best of the insight that I get to you. Oh uh, my gosh. Please text that to me because I'm a creative brain. And so I'm like, what can I wake up and do today? That'll be amazing. Instead of, okay, I'm going to wake up and do my six habits that I do every morning and then go on to my amazing day. So I've got to try to build those. I, yeah, I agree. And like the, what they say is that the, if you do it long enough, it becomes so simple. Your brain doesn't even have to think about it anymore. So that's, you have to like fight through the beginning and then it becomes easier. So, um, I will, I will send you all the stuff that I, I'm crowdsourcing. Yeah. My only we'll true habits are I brush my teeth every day and probably have coffee every day. Those are my two most consistent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Obviously, um, equal pay, equal jobs, equal equality for women. Oh, I love that one. 
Um, and I loved your post the other day where you told secret, okay, this is my deodorant for life. You gave money to the U.S. Women's National Team to even things out, and that's where I send my money. I'm so that way too. I'm all about you know reinforcing good habits by by promoting when they when they get it right. I love that. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, you don't have time for this story, but um, when I was in college, I I was attacked by a serial rapist, and wow. luckily I escaped. Um, I was not raped, but I was attacked, and he ended up getting caught that night, and I caught the serial rapist that had raped, I think, over 20 women and had been on the loose for over 20 years in Salt Lake City, Utah, called the Capitol Hill Rapist. So that night really impacted my life, changed my life a lot, I think. I'm not the most terrified I've ever been. Hold on. We do not have time for this, but I have a couple quick questions because that's unbelievable. Okay. So um, you fought him off, I presume? He was a, he was going yes. to try to rape you, so you were attacked physically, but you managed to fight him off? Yeah, I came home from the club, of course, at 3 o'clock in the morning and went into my restroom, and there was a man standing in my shower in a mask and with sweatpants with the crotch cut out, and he attacked me, and he tried to get on top of me, and I laid on my back and kicked my legs like I was riding a bicycle and put up a huge fuss. And I really think that being naive helped me because I didn't understand for a long time what was happening. It, it was just so sudden and bizarre and crazy. And he went, he ran out and he called me an effing B word and he ran out because it was going to be too difficult. And I, I didn't even think to call the police or anything. I just didn't understand what had just happened. And when I picked up the phone to call my friend who just dropped me off, um, my phone cord was cut. And so that's when my brain processed that this was an attack. And um, luckily, my neighbor had heard the commotion and gotten up, and she called the police for me, and they were able to apprehend him that night. Oh, my gosh. So where did they yeah. find him? Just somewhere near your house? They So they'd been looking for this guy for so long that they had a drill that if they got an, a sexual assault call from Capitol Hill in Salt Lake City, that they would immediately um, lock off all the roads leading away from there. So they pulled him over and he had changed his clothes and he gave him an alibi. And then later when they checked his alibi, they found out that he'd been lying and that's how they caught him. So do you, uh, what was the name of yet? He, he like had a name. He was known. Yeah. Capitol Hill rapist. That was his name. Um, so do you I, keep tabs on like, if, is he still in jail? Are you ever worried that he's uh, no, get he out? got out of prison a few years ago and in a random twist, um, the guy that's one of his parole officers is also a college football official and he's the one that actually called me and said, hey, I saw your name in this file. Just wanted you to know he's getting out of prison. So, yeah, he's he's definitely out there. He's older now. That was, you know, back in the um, late 80s. So he's definitely older, but he's out. Oh, my gosh. Are you yeah. worried at all that he that he remembers any of the women or or, or that he would yeah, for sure. revenge on he you? For... Us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he stalked us. Like, he's been in my apartment multiple times. He had items of my clothes. Before that? Um, yeah, he, he had stalked me for a long time. You know, the police kind of give you a whole lowdown of everything, in part to help you change your behavior, which I would love to, you know, talk to women and tell them about that. But, um, yeah, it was a really creepy situation, and I had to go to a meeting at the district attorney's office with all of his victims, and we all looked just alike. So he had definitely patterned people, and it was a really creepy situation. Holy cow, that's terrifying. Yeah, I've never really talked about this, so there, there you have it. I, I don't really talk about wow. it, but you said how, what's the most scared I've ever been, and that's the most scared I've yeah, ever been. Yeah, that makes sense. And dressing yeah. up like, you know, a horror person with a mask and stuff to do it is just, oh, yeah. geez louise. Super creepy. Um, 
Wow, that's crazy. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm, uh. Sorry, our, our happy podcast ticket turned out. No, there, I mean, that's <laughs> fascinating. And also, like, I already knew you were a badass, but just like fighting him off until he runs away and then helping him get caught. I mean, that's just, you're a superhero. That's amazing. That's so cool. Uh, um, I don't really take credit for that because I was just reacting in the moment, but, um, yeah, it was good. Wow. Um, Number 10, uh, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Kind, interesting, hilarious. I love those. Uh, and the bonus question, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast to talk to? Oh, Doris Burke. I've been trying to get Doris, and so I'm going to follow up again. I'm going to I'm going to blame you this time and be like, hey, you know, I know you've been saying you haven't been able to, but let's try this again. Holly said you have to come on. Yeah, I would say Doris Burke and Rebecca Lobo. Rebecca is the funniest. I had Rebecca. I she was fantastic. You had Rebecca. Yeah, yeah. yeah Rebecca so, was um, great. Yeah, so Doris. Yeah, I already knew Rebecca, I think, so that's why I didn't say her, but Doris would be your next best. Awesome. It was so great to talk to you, Holly, and you have amazing stories. I'm going to have to have you on again to hit up all the other things that we didn't get to because, uh, man, what a crazy and wonderful and interesting life. Thanks for having me. That's what she said. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. On this week's episode, Marty tells you why he needs a motorized suitcase. Download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, Ubers that smell like cigarette smoke. If we can get a quiet mode on Uber where you can literally request that a driver doesn't talk to you, why can't there be some sort of smoke-free option when you order a car? One day if I snap, I think it's going to be about this because, you know, I get in there, my clothes smell, I'm coughing. It seems disrespectful just get into a car and be surrounded by cigarette smoke. And I did a little research to see if they've considered the option of a smoke-free car and learned that in the early days – all the drivers would have to go to a meeting and a car inspection and stuff like cigarette odor would keep them from getting approved. Now there's just so much demand that there's no interviews and you just sort of like approve every driver that applies and there's no smell requirement. And while researching, I also found this charming response from one driver to the question of whether an Uber driver smoking is appropriate. Quote, I'm a smoker. Since I'm assuming you're American, always remember, this is a free country. Tell the driver to pull over and get out of the car and walk. I use a spray deodorizer in my car to not offend any passenger. And then I get a review saying my car smelled too flowery. So save us both some grief and walk. Okay. So I get that this is an optional service. It is a reduced cost. But this is a free country is basically code for I'm an asshole and I'm too selfish to care about the negative effects of my behavior. So I don't think this is a free country is the correct answer to should or should you not smoke in your car. Also, dude, terrible air freshener on top of cigarette smoke is somehow even worse than the smoke in general. And my complaints are minimal. I was literally in a car once without a handle on my door to get out. And I didn't complain. This is where I draw the line. And there's more and more research about third-hand smoke which is the residue that settles on clothes and hair and furniture and cars, and it's been proven to be damaging and bad for you, almost to the equal of secondhand smoke where someone just blowing it right in your face. All right. feel good about what we accomplished today. If you are a driver for Uber or Lyft, please don't smoke in your car. And if you're a rider, don't smoke in someone else's car. I mean, if possible, don't smoke cigarettes at all, ever, because they're bad for you, and they're bad for everyone else, too. But I realize addiction's a tough thing.
All right, there, I fixed it. Kind of, maybe, probably not. I don't think any of you are going to stop smoking, but at least can we get the smoke-free option for the Ubers? Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. It's 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern every night on National ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. If you can't catch it live, you can always listen to select segments that we post to the Twitter feed, at Spain and Company. That's what she said. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.